Welcome to A Longer Table Podcast, a space where curiosity and proximity will challenge everything you thought you knew. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter, inviting you to pull up a seat. You just might leave thinking, maybe we're not so different. This episode is brought to you by Cozy Earth. You've probably heard me talk about them before because I love their pajamas and their bedding. E and I are obsessed with their sheets because they're temperature regulating and they're made with bamboo viscose. You can shop the world's softest bedding, towels, pajamas, loungewear, and more, and get 35% off using the code ALONGERTABLE. All of their products come with a 10-year warranty, and right now they're running a Valentine's sale. So in addition to the code that I just gave you, ALONGERTABLE, you can get everything for an additional 25% off. So run to Cozy Earth and get those pajamas and the bedding. It You won't regret it. I promise you. It's why it's been on Oprah's favorites and now it's on Manda's favorites. Marie Beecham is an advocate for social justice and unity. She has empowered millions online with the inspiring message that anyone can make a difference. She also hosts her own podcast called the Changemaker Podcast. I've adored Marie for quite some time now, and I invited her to the table to hear how she would answer my question. What do people of color wish their white friends knew? Marie, welcome to A Longer Table. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I have really enjoyed following you online. That sounds so lame, and I feel like I've been saying that a lot (laughs) when I have people on the podcast, but it's the truth. I, I meet so many cool people through Instagram and, um, you know, you put out very specific content. We're going to talk about that, um, Mm -hmm. and what you do and who you are, but what's something I wouldn't necessarily know about you just by looking at your Instagram. Yeah. So, um, like I think what comes to mind for me is most is probably the like ironic things because a lot of my job does happen online. So something, that people find surprising is I'm actually very much a digital minimalist. I have many hours of my day marked off where it's no screens and like no anything. And I think that's good for me. It keeps me grounded. I always like, I always um, plug it with friends and people like that, but I think that's probably something that would be surprising. Yeah, no, (laughs) I, I, I like hearing that too, because I feel like people see me on online a decent amount as well. And they think I must spend all of my time there. And it's just not true. If anything, yeah. I think I have better boundaries because I use it for work. So I have to show up maybe more frequently, but it doesn't mean I spend nearly as much time scrolling as maybe the average user who's not creating content, but rather just consuming. I don't know if right, you feel the same right. way, but... I do. I do. It's very yeah. much a work thing. Yeah. And then, okay. Is there anything personally like about you like i have no idea if you're in college or if how old you are or if you're married or if you have children like i know nothing about you because you're really good at keeping your yeah. page about a specific thing so right. anything personal do you have a dog <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny question um i do like to keep the mystery alive and this is this is um it's honestly not a mistake. I, when I first had my whole online career activism, all that kind of stuff started in 2020, which was a wild time, grand level in the world and then personal level. Um, and so I got all these eyes on me and immediately it was this quick decision of, 
okay, am I an influential person and people should be like really interested in me? Or do I just want this to be about my ideas? And I think the best choice for me was to keep all of my like highly visible stuff about my ideas. And I think it's so funny that you even noticed that I think most people wouldn't notice that there's no photos or mention of family, of where I live, of I'll tell you right now, I have no dogs Um, (laughs) and different things like that. But I have learned to be really private because it just makes me present in my day-to-day life. Um, And it helps me to not, I don't know, chase after some sort of likability or like be a whole personality, but rather just a person with things to say, you know? So, Mm. so I'm, so it's kind of by design that way, but I think most people don't notice. So props to you for even, even noticing yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I don't even know what that would be like since pretty much my entire online, like I, I don't want to use the P word platform. Um, <laughs> my, my entire online existence, uh-huh. I, I try, I try to be, n- no one does this perfectly, but exactly who I am in real life on the internet. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm pretty just like open and that's just who I am. But if if you take away all of that, it would just be really interesting. Man, I want to be mysterious like you. That's so cool. <laughs> well, and it's definitely different jobs. It's definitely, I mean, the things you're speaking about, you obviously share your personal experiences with family and all these different things. And the things I sh- I'm speaking about and like we will get into in this episode I guess I do share a personal sliver of my life, but it's only the things related to my subject matter of race. So I do speak a lot about my experiences with race um, and racial identity and growing up and all that. So I guess that is an area where I do. I do. Yeah. So let's go there if you don't mind. What is your ethnicity? Um, I think that will inform the rest of this conversation. Yes. So I am black. I'm actually a biracial black woman, half black, half white. Um, though I grew up in a predominantly white city, like predominantly, predominantly white. Um, and so I never really saw myself as biracial because the people around me didn't see me as biracial. You know, you notice the thing that's, that's different. So I've always just seen myself as black. Um, though if I grew up in a predominantly white area, I probably, the biracial aspect there would probably be more significant, but yes, I am black and my whole career online existence is speaking about race, um, making sense of race and kind of taking the intimidation factor out of conversations about race, especially with white people. Um, I just like to invite a lot more people into the conversation, no matter where your views are, your stances are on this thing or that. Um, I just want to make race a topic that we're where we're not afraid to go there. Yeah. You said this, that you started this in 2020. Is that right? Right. Was that in the wake of George Floyd and other things that were going on that year? Or was that coincidental timing? Or what really inspired you to start doing what you do? That's a great question. I, yeah, it was in the wake of, of George Floyd and protests in the summer of 2020. Um, that I started to share educational information online and my audience grew and the eyeballs on me grew. Um, and on the ones in the one sense, it was spur of the moment. Um, but also it was like a whole lifelong thing. Like everybody who grew up with me knew that race was a passion of mine and talking about these things. But, um, 
it was definitely related to the events of 2020 um, and everything kind of, kind of snowballed from there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So if you don't mind mm-hmm. as a biracial woman, you identify, you said you identify as a black woman. Yep. Do you need the distinction? Should I, should I use the distinction biracial black woman? You can say as a black woman, whatever, okay. whatever you like, I'm not too particular. So as a black woman, would you be willing to share a specific instance where you've experienced racism firsthand? Um, yeah, I would say just in, in general, the majority of racism I experienced in my life, it'd probably be concentrated into the younger years. Um, and especially like middle school, junior high years, that's when, you know, people haven't really grown their moral compass. It has not fully developed. And that's when racism in my life became just really apparent, something I was wrestling with a lot and racial identity and trying to make sense of who I am and if I'm different and how I'm different. Um, and so racism in middle school was much more conspicuous than the racism I experienced as an adult. So racism in middle school, um, was just people saying things about how, um, you know, I don't act black or I don't seem black or complimenting me by telling me that, um, I might as well be white or that I talk like a white person thinking that these things are flattering. Um, and I think that really did impact me for a time in terms of as a kid, you're perceptive, you're smart, and you pick up on these negative racial stereotypes. Um, and then in adulthood, it's more of like a a coded language, um, type of thing. And in adulthood racism that I, experience yeah it's more of like what you'd call like the quote-unquote like respectable version of prejudice or the respectable version of division where the whole outspoken super racist thing that's not common in my everyday life and and I'm grateful for that and that is reality for some people um but my experience is more um just people making assumptions about me and one way that people often like reveal it um is they explain how like from getting to know me, I'm actually different than what they expected. And then they proceed to describe these somewhat negative stereotypes. Um, and it's that coded language, but I I can, I can read between the lines. And again, it's usually intended as flattery. Like you're not like other black people. You're not like other, um, whatever, but, um, it really does just reveal negative stereotypes again. Yeah. Yeah, I like that you you explain the difference between the racism that is maybe a little more overt as a as a yeah. child, as a kid, as yeah. a teen, and the racism that you encounter in your day to day as an adult. That's helpful because, yeah, I think when we hear the word racism, at least from my perspective as a white person, I, I've done a lot of work around not growing defensive mm-hmm. and 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 just listening. But immediately, I think defenses rise. I'm not racist. Like I've heard it so many times um, from people I love who I believe don't want to be racist, would never overtly be racist, but like myself probably have ingrained individually and systemically prejudice Mm -hmm. and other uh, bias and, and whatnot ideas that inform the way we show up in the world that are racist. So Mm -hmm. I 
We'll just own the fact that what I've been saying is I'm a recovering racist who doesn't want to be racist and wants to keep talking about race because I think that's probably the only way forward. So you spend your career um, talking about this stuff. You are a DEI advocate. So Mm -hmm. let's break it down for people who don't know. What does DEI stand for? DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it pretty much covers all sorts of topics relating to social issues. And in my case, specifically race-related issues. Mm. And so what does a DEI advocate do? Like, what is a day in your life? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, as a DEI advocate, I host a podcast, The Changemaker, um, where I talk about all sorts of things relating to race um, and prejudice and advocacy. And not advocacy, like, here's how to become an activist, but just real, like, day-to-day what it looks like to make a difference and be a force for good on a daily basis. Um, so that's one thing. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. Um, so I write like little articles about these kinds of things. Like you mentioned, I post on social media. Um, and then I also speak with companies or schools, organizations, colleges, um, and speak about all things race and and racism and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, what I think has set you apart when I when I discovered you and started following along, what set you apart from some other DEI advocate-related people that I followed on social media was your ability to share information so graciously. And I'm not trying to tone police anyone or say that anyone's doing it wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying that that is a draw for me to you and why I asked you to come yeah. on the podcast because I want people to hear information in a way that I'm hoping they'll hear it. And yeah. I know there are people who think, oh, why are we talking about race? Or mm-hmm. like they, they seem to think that talking about racism is more divisive than it is mm-hmm. bringing unity and peace and love and all these wonderful things to the world. And I, on one hand, like I get it. I get yeah. where, why why they would come to that conclusion. But I, I would be curious in your own words, if you would be willing to share, how can this work? How can conversations around racism, for example, cause division and how can actually inspire Mm -hmm. unity and create actual change yeah um that's a great question and yeah like you said um it can be really intimidating and it can immediately send the the defenses up of okay this is going to be a call out and we're going to talk about why i'm bad and what i'm doing wrong and i really get that um and the people who've been most influential for me, it's because I felt deeply understood by them. And so because they deeply understand me, then they've got like, then, then there's trust that grows there. And so one thing that I set out to do very early in my career is to really, really understand where white people are coming from when they have reluctance um, or they have concerns when it comes to conversations about race and not taking I think from all sides of the conversation, I'm a huge advocate for viewpoint diversity. You know, everybody likes the idea of being open-minded and open to new information. But then when you actually hear a viewpoint that's unpopular or a viewpoint that you don't hold, then you immediately jump to, you're a terrible person with terrible ideas and you're making the world worse. And I don't think that's the best way to do things. So through embracing like viewpoint diversity and having a better understanding of people's concerns with 
the anti-racism movement, um, I, I've personally like sifted through where I don't think that those concerns are very legitimate um, and also taking those criticisms. And so I'm, I'm with you that like tone policing and, and shutting down and being like, don't be angry. Don't be upset. Don't be this. That can really stop progress before it starts. And also I've learned throughout my career that like, I do have the capacity to meet people where they're at. Like I'm fully capable. And if I want the message of anti-racism and deeply unifying social movements, if I want that to reach everybody, then I'll be the person to do it. I'll be the person to lean into the hard conversations and I can extend grace and I'll be fine. Like um, I've, I've felt really passionate about that. And it's because I started out by, I'd say I'm like example a of doing it wrong. When mm. I got started, um, I really did see this like good, bad binary where when I got any cues that a person sees the world, how I do, um, then they're good. And ding, like you get to be liked by me. You get to be my friend. You get to be in my life versus if they give me any indication that they saw the world or social issues or issues of racism at all differently than me. It wasn't even that their ideas were terrible. It was just that like the identity thing of they're not like me. They're like them. They're like the bad people. Um, and so I pushed them away. But then when this became my career and I started trying to do this work, I realized, okay, we're either going to be in these pockets of agreement where we're all nodding our heads completely on the same page about every single thing, or the people who we're cutting out of our lives and pushing away are the very people we need to be talking to the most about mm -hmm. issues of race. So now when people express reluctance or I don't know about this whole anti-racism thing, I don't know about all this stuff. It's like, oh, great. You're the exact person I want to talk to. Let's let's talk through it. Um, and genuinely, with all the things I share, I I think different people do have really different things to learn from each other. So I have certain things to teach. And in these conversations that I initiate, I, I think I absolutely have things to learn too. And that's been a really crucial aspect of my work and kind of its evolution throughout the past few years is I hear criticism and I hear feedback and then I lean into, into that route and I go down that road um, really to, to, to learn as I go. That, that's kind of, I hope that answers your question. I don't remember the question, but I hope that answers it. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. Yeah. The question was about <clears throat> causing division versus causing unity. Mm. And I think, I think you right. answered it spot on in, in just saying that essentially you, you want to hear out and converse with the very people who don't see the world the same as you. And, yeah. and it, that it can be done in a very productive way in a very peaceful yeah. way. Um, right. So let's go there for a minute. Mm -hmm. Let's, this is like a big, broad question. So I have no yeah. idea how you're, I have no idea how you're going to answer it. But I'm not necessarily asking it because you're a black woman, but more so because you're a DEI expert, a DEI mm -hmm. advocate, so to say. What do you think people of color wish their white friends knew or understood about them? That's a great question. <laughs> and I told you it was a bit, it's a big one. <laughs> it is a big question. Um, I think that it really depends on who I'm talking to. I'll give, I'll give two categories. There is, on one hand, the white friend 
who's really passionate about anti-racism and really wants to create space whenever you need it and who really wants to be there and be doing the work and be in it to that white friend. And I do have those friends and I love those friends to those people. I would generally tell them something to the effect of like, chill out and um, not chill out about racism, but don't think that your friendship is this project and don't think that your friendship is this thing to constantly be maintaining. And if you're thinking about that person's race, they're totally thinking about their race. I think a lot of times the socially conscious white people can do just as much kind of stuff as people who aren't as socially conscious because those white people might feel like, hey, I'm one of the good ones, so I can say this. Or, hey, I get you, so let me talk over you and explain that I already get you. Or Mm. all of these different things I think are more common with the white people who care a lot about racism um, and really want to make their friends feel valued and affirmed. So to that person, I would say just like like humble yourself in a sense, not of like self-loathing or hate yourself or be so frustrated with yourself. but just in the sense of just recognize that you don't know it all and that you might have read some books and and you might have watched some awesome documentaries. And I do think you've got great intentions and a great heart, but you don't need to prove that to me every single day. Because if it's me if it, and it's my friend, there's nobody who I'm really closely knit, who I've, there's nobody who I have a really close friendship with who thinks of me as their black friend, Marie. They think of me as Marie. So if you care so much about your black friend, Marie, well, then we're probably not that close if you're not seeing me as just me. And instead you see it through this really racially charged lens. Um, I don't think that a friendship needs that front and center. But then to the other friend, the friend who would never talk about race, would never bring up race, who would rather just completely ignore anything happening in the world and not go anywhere near anything potentially controversial to that friend. I would say that when something happens in the world, or especially if something happens in your life, in your community, you witness something, you hear something, and it seems like racism might be relevant to the conversation to that person. I would say, if you're a person of color who's experienced racism or something like that, To you, it doesn't feel like this big political thing. It doesn't feel like, oh, this huge agenda. Oh, this awkward topic. It's a part of your life. So to be so afraid to go there, to be so afraid to talk about the controversial hot topics of race, it's like, we're not talking about the controversial hot topics of race. We're talking about my upbringing. We're talking about my neighborhood. We're talking about the experience I had a few hours ago. And so Mm -hmm. there's different approaches. And I think, you know, it depends on the person. And I'm always just trying to like pull people in whatever is the opposite direction of their tendency. You know, Mm -hmm. if you tend to be really, really socially conscious, then I say, let's reel you in and just bring you back to remembering that there's a lot that you don't know. And if you would rather completely ignore every single thing related to race then I'd like to pull you back in the direction of this is really relevant. This is really real. It's not a political hot topic. It's just my life. And so let's talk about my life. We're going to be close. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Kind of going with the opposite of where they naturally uh, go 
with the energy and all of that. That's good. Uh, that is something I've learned is to humble myself. I mean, it's st- I'm still learning it, right? It's not like I learned it one time <laughs> and it's over. But to really, to really listen and to say like, just because I have read some books and listened to some podcasts and have friends that are black that I love and respect, um, doesn't mean that there's not still more for me to learn from more and more people. So it's good. Okay. So what would you advise? You've talked about this online before a little bit, and I thought it was so good. I wanted to bring it into this conversation here for people. What would you advise people say or do instead of responding to their friends who are people of color when they're when they're sharing something with us mm-hmm. that we can't relate to, but we want them right. to know we're hearing them? We often say things like, I understand, or oh my gosh, I totally get it. I understand. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this is true even outside of the conversation of race. I think if right. somebody has suffered a miscarriage and I say, mm-hmm. Oh, I totally get it, I understand. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that probably really offends them if they know that I haven't suffered that loss and here I am saying I understand. But we do it. Our intention is usually we just want them to know we're hearing them and we honestly don't know what else to say, I think. Okay, right. so as as it applies to race and all of these other conversations, what would you advise we say or do when someone's sharing an experience that we can't possibly understand, but we mm-hmm. want to say something to tell them we're hearing them? Right. Yeah. I think that two important things come to mind. Um, the first is the best way to show someone that you understand to demonstrate is to show that you're still interested in understanding them better. So something that happens very frequently is you, you start to share your experience and maybe a white person who's very socially aware and socially conscious cuts in and explains, I know what this is. They're, they're doing this to you. They're, this is implicit racial bias. This is that. Um, and they kind of, they're interrupting you and letting you know that they understand already rather than continuing to listen and continuing to learn and demonstrating in this moment, I want to understand you more. So a big thing is listening and, um, and just hearing and continuing to learn because there comes a point where when you're interrupted over and over or talked over and the person saying, I understand you, I understand you. You're just not convinced because it seems like you don't even want to listen to me right now. And that, like, you don't seem very interested in learning more. Um, so that's really a big one. You don't need to convince someone that you understand them perfectly or that you share this exact experience. People don't need that. They don't need someone Like, I don't need my friends to have lived the same life as me. I don't need my friends to have walked through the exact same thing as me. But if they can listen attentively and listen with care, then that's enough for us to have a really strong friendship and for me to be really supported in that moment. Mm -hmm. And similar to what you said, it's as simple as saying, as just those, those affirming statements of, I hear you and I understand you. And the second thing that I think ties right into that. Um, it's just giving people the benefit of the doubt. Like when, let's say I had a really hard day and I go to my friend and I explain that this person, I think they made an assumption about me because of my race. This is why I think that this is why I hurt my feelings. This is why I'm down about it. You don't need to blow it up into like, by me sharing that experience, I'm not necessarily trying to make like a huge political statement. I'm not trying to offer a commentary on this larger thing that's happening in the culture or anything like that. 
I'm just sharing my experience, but I think oftentimes um, white people can be like, well, I don't know if that's how that goes. And I don't know if that's how this, and those are, those might be really fair points. Um, but especially when it comes to personal experience, I'm talking about me. So let's just keep it right here. Let's just keep it locked in on this moment. Cause that's where my mind is at right now. I'm not thinking about the things on the news. I'm not thinking about the article you read or the book you read challenging this thing or that in this moment, it's just me. It's just me living my life. Um, and so giving a friend the benefit of the doubt in that moment, rather than trying to turn a conversation into like a, a rather than trying to turn a conversation into like a big debate. Mm. Um, I think that's the best way to really show up like just as a friend. Yeah. That's so good. I definitely was thinking, I'm like, Ooh, I, I might be guilty of that. You know, like there are probably times where I've responded and I, or even like, Oh, but maybe they didn't mean it like that. Or maybe you yeah. misinterpreted this thing. And <laughs> I think it's sometimes because we're so yeah. desperately wanting it to not be true. Oh yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. But it's true and not acknowledging it isn't going to help anyone. Um, It's good. We'll get back to the conversation after this quick advertisement. Able is moving fashion forward by creating go-to wardrobe pieces that empower both the women who wear them and the women who make them. You've heard me talk about Able before because they're my favorite brand. My favorite place to shop is ableclothing.com. I love the white button down. It's the Harris button down and the Merrily jean jacket. In fact, I love it so much that I was wearing it, I believe, four days in a row, according to my foster daughter who pointed it out to me. Teens are humbling. So you can shop for a jean jacket or whatever you want at ableclothing.com using the code ALONGERTABLE15 for 15% off. Now, back to the show. You you already spoke to this a little bit, but I wanted to ask you about the white people in your life who you who are allies, who people who are allies and, and advocates who are white, who are really mm-hmm. wanting, not in a performative way, not for their own yeah. gain or glory, just truly want to see a world where white supremacy is not a thing and racism is not a thing, which feels mm-hmm. so impossible, but it doesn't have to be, right? Mm-hmm. For for those people who, I think, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this. Mm-hmm. There's a balance in speaking out against it, but not speaking over people of color and mm-hmm. their experiences, and right. then not being silent when you should be speaking up. And I've noticed mm-hmm. a trend, you probably have noticed it too, where I think more and more white people are pulling back and not saying anything because I think more and more people came out and spoke up in 2020 or following the events of 2020 specifically that were so publicized. But then that that showing up and that speaking out wasn't followed with ongoing day-to-day action. And right. so there was some criticism there. And unfortunately, instead of receiving that criticism and just saying, oh, I hear you and I want to learn from that and mm-hmm. I'll keep going, it almost like shut them down. Yeah. Um, which I think actually speaks more to our culture of fragility as white people mm-hmm. than than anything else, I think. I'm processing out loud as we talk yeah. right now. If you, if you can't tell, that's my wheels are turning. But mm-hmm. what I want to know is what what is that balance for when how do you see it? When should a white person speak up and yeah. talk about race? When should we take a back seat and listen? 
how can one discern if a white person is listening to this conversation right now, mm-hmm. how can we discern if we're missing the mark or if we're hitting, mm-hmm. if we're on track? Right. No, that's a great question. And I think it shows good intentions. Like for sure. Whenever someone asks me that question, I'm like the fact that you're even trying to, you know, get it right, not misstep. Like that's really good. And I don't think that I try to make it really clear in my anti-racism work. I'm not trying to encourage white people to operate out of the place of fear. And I think that a lot of white people, they spoke out out of a place of fear. Um, And then if they didn't speak out perfectly, then maybe now they stay silent out of a place of fear. Um, And so that fear-based decision-making, it's never going to play out in the long run. It's never going to lead to long-term change, even if they're continuing to speak out because they're afraid of what people might say if they stop, um, rather than being motivated by fear. Um, the, the much better thing is to be motivated by like a clear vision for what you want the future to look like. You know, I always talk about not just fighting against a bad thing, but what is your clear vision of equity? You know, what's the good thing you're fighting for? Um, and then leaning into your role, your specific purpose for that. Um, so in terms of like missing the mark or hitting the mark or whatever you want to, however you want to put it, um, I would say that I personally, probably like all of my nearest and dearest friends in my life, they're not vocal online about anti-racism stuff. And it's a heart check for them because for some people, the most true thing, especially if they share a lot of their heart online, then a, a good way to go about that is to share their passion for anti-racism through sharing what they're reading or sharing what they're listening to. Um, But I have people who I know and love and respect who they make the decision that, you know, being really vocal online um, almost makes me feel like there I've done the work, you know, I've done my part and now I'm good. I'm one of the good ones. And it almost makes them feel excused from the, the spur of the moment times when you could speak up, you know, and I'm I'm honestly a proponent of that, especially for people who are concerned with, it's called like performative activism or virtue signaling, where you do these different things to let people know that, hey, I'm a good person. I'm a not racist person. Don't think of me as one of the bad ones. Um, If someone is struggling with that, if you're like, yeah, I genuinely don't even know my own intentions. I always say, go a time without posting something online. That's not inherently immoral. Let your actions and your words speak louder than the bumper sticker. And so, because what I think is absolutely most important is the moments that you don't anticipate. It's not the time where you plan on taking this photo for your Instagram story. And it's not the moments where you plan on writing out this caption for what matters to you. It's really the moments that it just comes down to integrity, comes down to your values, where something is said and you're caught off guard, or you witness something and you're caught off guard, or your child asks you a question and you didn't see it coming and you couldn't have prepared. I think those are the moments that are actually most impactful. Um, So I don't think that people need to be as concerned with the more like curated versions of anti-racism. A lot of my work is focused on developing your heart and mind so that you're the kind of person who can respond well in those unforeseen moments and in those circumstances that 
you just didn't prepare for, but you have the heart and the mind that's equipped to do that, to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. Almost that the idea that what's inside will always flow out. And therefore when when you're bumped up against the side, what spills out you, you know, it it won't be the curated anti-racist post, but whatever's really there. And so that's good. That's good. This might seem random and you can also take this question where you want, but (laughs) I love lately. I've been loving asking people, especially people I'm still getting to know like you, Mm -hmm. if they have an unpopular opinion, Oh, (laughs) because I'm finding it's, it's just fun to speaking of, we were talking about earlier, like getting to know other people's points of views. I, I'm realizing how many people I love and agree with on a lot of things, but we don't share the same unpopular opinion, for example. So it may Great. seem random, but curious if you have one. I'd say I have a lot. Um, <laughs> I would say I do have a lot of unpopular opinions. And to keep it in this in this sphere, um, my unpopular opinion, I'll give a couple because I okay. really do. I'm kind of a free thinker. Um I'd say my unpopular opinion with my own work. I mean, you pointed out my gracious approach, as you put it, Uh, not my own words. Um, But my unpopular opinion is that with this as my job and with wanting to impact as many white people as I can, I do owe it to them to make racism less, to make anti-racism less intimidating. And so my unpopular opinion is like, I, I, in a sense, like I moderate my own tone. I want to always be kind. And that's just like a personal values thing of like, it's very controversial to say that like, I will stay kind and I will stay gracious and I will stay charitable and anger and frustration and all these things. Um, but I do get a lot of pushback for that. Um, because for me to say that that's what I'm going to maintain, that's different than me saying every single person needs to be this way. Um, but that is something that's been unpopular. And another unpopular opinion is I do extend that out in a way to white people um, where the most common like comment I get or response I get to anything I do is like, yeah, sure. Show them, show them a new way of thinking. Yeah, sure. Teach them about their prejudices, but but you don't know the people in my life, and I don't owe it to them because they're actually a lost cause. They're actually too far gone. They're actually so problematic. And whenever white people say that to me, which I hear on the daily, um, I always respond with like, "I don't care. I think you do owe it to them." Like, and you know, you might think that they're a lost cause, but who makes you the judge of that? And people often don't take well to that. That's why I say it's an unpopular opinion, but I'm even thinking it's not just that you owe it to them. It's not about them. You know, like, like when a kid, like when I was a kid, I'd always be say to my mom, like, well, they did this and they did this and they're, they said that. And my mom would always be like, it's not about them. I care about you. I care about what you say and what you do in the same way. You don't think that they're going to listen. Well, it's not about them. You're the one who didn't speak up. You know, you, you think that what they said was like, you think that what they said was not very respectful or not very kind? Well, it's not about them. What did you say? How did you respond? And I think that everybody could take a little bit more ownership for your own role in a conversation rather than just saying, 
rather than just staying silent and then walking away shocked and being like, I can't believe they would say that. I can't believe they would do that. Oh my gosh. That's so problematic. It's like, it's not about them. Like you in that situation could have been vocal. What did you do? Um, And I think that's an unpopular opinion because what people want to hear is, oh, forget them. Oh yeah. If they're problematic, oh, never talk to them again, block their phone number, get out of there fast. And I'm like, no, you have a strong relationship with them. Let's see if it's strong enough to stand up to accountability. And that accountability can be kind. It should be motivated by love and care. But yeah, I think it is your job. Like that's my unpopular opinion. Yeah. It's it's so good. Your it sounds like your unpopular opinion is that you're not for cancel culture, particularly yeah. in a space where I think anything revolving around race or oh, goodness, so many different topics. I, I've I've read a quote that was circulating the internet for a while that was like, "We can disagree about really anything except for if you're racist or homophobic or I forget what the mm-hmm. other like." There was like right. a series, right. and. And I got the sentiment for sure. I, right, I, right. I would never want to minimize or say we shouldn't, we should tolerate people right. hating on other people. Um, and cancel culture isn't going to be the thing that gets our world moving forward away from all of these things that we don't want to see. So it's like, yeah, I just, I really appreciate your grace, gracious approach. I will, um, I will take credit if that ever becomes part of your, of your mantra. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. And, oh, sorry. No, I go ahead. Say, I was going to say, um, yeah. And kind of similarly, I always say we should be intolerant of certain ideas. We should be intolerant of racism, but we shouldn't be intolerant of people. And so there's a big difference between being completely opposed to a certain idea and being completely opposed to ever speaking again to a person who said something that reminded you of that idea. And so people are dynamic, people are growable, um, and people are changeable. I really do believe that. Um, And there's a big difference between saying, hey, that idea is not okay, and here's why I can't be around those words, that message, and saying, hey, you as a person are not okay. And that's why I'll never speak to you again. The The former, I think, is much more effective in unifying and change-making than the latter. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. Um, it's necessary for building longer tables. You know, yeah. we can't, we can't build longer tables if we refuse to sit down at the same table as people. So you, yeah, you, yeah. you, you led me right to this one as we, as we kind of wrap up here, <laughs> I am curious who's made the table longer for you, or in other words, who has given you opportunities or changed a belief you once held? Yeah. Um, there's, there's been a few people, but definitely the one who is most impactful, um, he was my uh, pastor at a church I used to go to, and he gave, he was a white man who was very interested in racial justice, and he gave a seminar on it, and I went up to him, and I talked to him afterward, and I asked if we could talk more about it um, at a later date, and he was like, yeah, sure, and so we got together again and ate some Chipotle and just talked through all sorts of ideas where in certain areas, 
we were very aligned in how we saw things, especially with like race and racial justice. But in terms of all sorts of social issues and just different things, we could not have been more different. We had very different upbringings, very different ways of like making sense of the world. Um, and we just had, he, he's become one of like my closest friends and mentors um, because I would credit him with, he showed me how important it was. Even the things that he disagreed with me on, he had, he knew my ideas better than I did. Like he took me into his library and he showed me a wall full of books written by people who I totally agree with. Um, and I just hadn't read their books. You know, I had more, was more vaguely familiar. He was more well-read on my ideas than I was. And he explained them to me charitably. And I was like fully nodding along. I thought it would be more of like an angsty debate where, you know, we straw man argument each other and tear it down. But first he really built up my viewpoint in a way that was so honoring to me. Um, and he was even teaching me things where I'm like, yeah, yeah, that. And then he would kindly explain what he sees as the issues with this or that, that method. Um, and it really just warmed me up to viewpoint diversity in general, which I'd say changed my life. It no longer had me afraid of ideas or afraid of disagreement. Um, because at one point in my life, disagreement meant the end of a friendship. It meant the end of a relationship. And that's a scary thing. But once I really befriended this mentor of mine, um, we had so much mutual respect for each other. We kind of did like a little book club. He'd recommend a book. We'd read it and talk about it. I'd recommend a book. We'd read it and talk about it. Um, and it absolutely was extending this longer table for me because um, he did me such a great service just by helping me understand that people who see different social issues differently than I do or political issues differently than I do. He helped me understand like the best possible version of their ideas. And so it just relieved me of a lot of animosity that I had in general. And I could see people as decent human beings who I disagreed with instead of seeing people in my community um, or in the world as awful people out to get me. It just really humanized um, just it really humanized people who see things differently and it was freeing and it was really liberating. And I was so scared going into it. I was like, I'm going to change his mind and I'm going to show him what I think. And it just wasn't that at all. I ended up with a really great friend and a renewed perspective and a better understanding of his ideas and my own. And I'd say the biggest thing that had actually changed in my mind was I thought viewpoint diversity. I would say that that's just sharing problematic ideas. And I would say that that's harmful and here's why it's bad. But he really showed me that viewpoint diversity, I now see it as a really beautiful thing and a strengthening thing and a helpful thing. Um, so that would, that would be the person who I'd say has been very impactful. Yeah. I, I love that for you so much. And I love that you went into the relationship thinking it was going to be one way and it came out yeah. a different way. I think it's a really beautiful thing if we can surprise people with our willingness to hear them, yeah. our willingness to engage in conversations, even when we don't see eye to eye. I find this happening a lot in my world right now, my, my world, meaning just like my corner of the world, um, mm -hmm. in my relationships with people who don't interpret scripture the same way as me. Um, mm. we don't share all the same theology and mm -hmm. 
even though to me these aren't essential things, they are important things. And navigating mm-hmm. that in relationship is so tricky. Um, but yeah. I, I would say that you as a DEI advocate and and doing what you do, I think it's really cool that you get to model how we actually need each other and how that can work. How, I mean, because I think there are people who probably, this might be um, a stretch to say this, but I, I'm not sure that it is. It's a scary thought, but I, I, I think there are people who actually think this way who just wish that the U.S. would segregate into these different, Mm. no longer be like one country, but really be different countries where, oh, you all believe this, go live your socialist life, you know, this way, or you all believe this, go live your liberal agenda this way, your Republican agenda over here. Um, Mm. And man, sometimes I even get caught into that thinking too. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that Mm -hmm. it would be better if we were just all like, you want that way of life? Go this way. You want this way of life? You know, we'll see. We'll see whose turns out better. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like, I feel like that's like the childish thing that naturally Mm -hmm. we get to at some times, but it's a beautiful thing. I've never had better moments in my life than the ones that are shared with people who are who bring just such variety to the table. Um, It's obviously why I'm so passionate about this and it's Mm -hmm. changed my life for the better. So yeah, I just want to thank you for showing up and for sharing and, and really just providing a safe space for people to, to hear us dialogue about how we go about, you know, um, anti-racism work and diversity and equity and inclusion, all of it. Um, so thank you. Yeah. I just can't say it enough. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and initiating so many different conversations. Um, I, I think it's a beautiful thing and I think you model viewpoint diversity really, really well. Um, and yeah, I'm so grateful we could have this conversation today. Mm -hmm.